I don't know. Put me in Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 144. Where were you in 62? One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. Put your flat bags on. Join me home. We'll have some fun when the clock strikes one. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. We're gonna rock, rock, rock till broad daylight. We're gonna rock, we're gonna rock around the clock tonight. When the clock strikes two, three, and four, if the band slows down. Hello and welcome to episode 144 of Pop Culture Affidavit podcast takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this episode is the first of a trio of episodes where I'm going to be looking at three of the most important movies in the nostalgia subgenre, all of which have significant anniversaries this year. They are movies that celebrated a particular era of the 20th century, as well as tackled themes of growing up and the end of adolescence, and all three of them made a cultural impact with their respective generations through both their stories and their soundtracks. The first film I'm going to cover is what I consider to be the film that really made the genre popular, a film which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. It's 1973's American Graffiti. With me to discuss the film is Rob Kelly, you get to hear Rob and I discuss that movie right after this trailer, so stick around. When the clock strikes 12, we'll cool off and start a rock. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. American Graffiti! Where were you in 62? special one and jump into your candy-colored custom or your screaming machine, cruise downtown and catch American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Baby, what's that? It's a movie. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Go back in time. Where were you in 62? Is that you in that beautiful car? Jeez, what a waste of machinery. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. What did, what did you say? Someone wants me. Someone roaming the streets wants me. And I bet you're smart enough to get us some brew. A ballpoint pen, a pint of old Harper. Okay, you got an ID for the liquor? 
Not until I left the car. You'll have to get it before. Oh, well, I... I also... I forgot the car. We're finally getting out of this turkey town. You just can't stay 17 forever. If you ever get tired of going steady with somebody that ain't around, I'm up for grab. If I had a boyfriend, he'd pound you. What's wrong? Go to hell. Get your boogaloos out, baby. The Wolfman is everywhere. You know Toby Juarez? We killed him last night. Excuse me, I think we've had an accident. Well, I won't report you this time, but next time, just watch it, will you? I can dig it. It's one of those great old movies about romance, racing, and rock and roll. Oh, American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Where were you in 62? My guest tonight is a prolific podcaster with several shows, two of which focus on movies, the Film and Water podcast, and one of my personal favorites, Fade Out, where he covers the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Please welcome back to the show, my good friend, Rob Kelly. How's hi, it going, Tom. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Hi. hi, Tom. I'm glad to be back on the show. It's nice to talk to you again. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to see. We, I think our last conversation was about a treasury edition of the, the Winter Olympics or something. Yeah. Spider-Man and the Hulk at the Winter Olympics. Mm. <laughs> we are now yeah. here to talk about an equally esteemed piece of pop culture. Yes. Yes. Oh, all right. Um, so, yeah. So we are going to be talking about American Graffiti. This is uh, directed by George Lucas. It was released in August of 1973. Um, I was on Fandango earlier today out of curiosity to see if this is being released somewhere uh, for its 50th anniversary. And it looks like Fathom Events is doing something in late August, but I don't have any details on it. It was I hit the little button that says alert me when details pop up. So hopefully it'll be playing in my area <laughs> or maybe it's the not, Alamo Drafthouse might. Or, <laughs> so. It's it's playing in mine in, in okay. late August. So I can't, I really am excited because I've never seen this on the big screen. So it's nice. Neither cool. have I. So, um, yeah. So like 50 years ago, uh, this came out and Lucas, you know, Lucas was, has been involved in a, a number of different movies and movie franchises over his career. Indiana Jones, Star Wars uh, are the two biggest ones. He's done a lot of writing. He's done a lot of producing. He's only ever directed six films. Uh, the three Star Wars prequels, Star Wars, THX 1138, and this. So this is kind of the... When you think of Lucas's adventure in sci-fi, this is kind of the odd man out. But this movie was an enormous success back in 1973. So much so that it kind of gave him the money he needed to go off and write Star Wars and get that moving because it was such a huge success. THX 1138 had not done well and it was kind of a 
it's it's a long story that we don't have the time to get into the production and his relationship with Warner Brothers. But when I look at the box office numbers for American Graffiti, the box office mojo gives me 115 million. Wikipedia in the same entry has 140 million and near 200 million. Um, it was released in 73, did huge numbers there. It was re-released in 1978. It did another like 60 or 70 million then. No matter what the number, it was a hit. And it was a huge return on investment. Um, in fact, one of Universal's all-time best returns on investment, because the budget for this movie was $775,000. That would be $5.5 million in today's standards, which is still, by 2023 standards, a cheap movie. Yeah, that, um, that is an astounding return on investment. It is. I mean, it just is. unbelievable. Yeah, and... I'll get into some of the making of facts that I looked up and uh, some of the, you know, in our, in our discussion later. But uh, I just want to give some a little background on it uh, right now that it did go on to earn a lot of prestige. It won gold, the Golden Globe for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy. Paul Lamette won the award for Most Promising Newcomer Male. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, both of those for uh, Lucas, Best Editing and Best Supporting Actress. That was for Candy Clark, who plays Debbie. Uh, wouldn't win any of the Academy Awards. Uh, the big winner at that year's Academy Awards was The Sting with uh, Robert Redford and Paul Newman. They liked that nostalgia picture, not this nostalgia yeah. picture. <laughs> Scott Joplin was yeah. <laughs> way, way more hip than uh, Chuck <laughs> Berry, right? never seen this thing <laughs> so, oh, it's a great movie i don't mean to knock the thing but it's just sort of funny that like they're like not yeah not this but that <laughs> like, okay lucas by the way would be nominated again in 1977 for picture director and original screenplay but he'd lose that time to woody allen uh because annie hall just dominated the oscars in in 1977 aside from really shoring up lucas's career uh in a big way uh, as a young director it also launched a number of careers and as i go through the plot synopsis and characters i'll say who's playing who and you will recognize a number of these actors who went on to film careers or uh careers in television throughout the 70s and 80s um so it's a big thing but before i get into all of that i i, I always ask this question whenever a guest on and we're talking about a piece of pop culture uh rob what's your origin story for this film i saw it on cable for the first time uh obviously anyone who is our age uh no you know in the 70s knew george lucas from one thing and it was sort of like oh he did he did other stuff i didn't you know like and you know in that tape in the days before even home video that stuff was kind of like, a, where can I find that? And I, and mm. then eventually we got cable and I remembered it, it played on, on our local cable station. And I watched it one night and, you know, it was a little bewildering because I only thought of George Lucas as one thing. Like, oh, he's the sci-fi guy. He's the king of science fiction. And here's this movie, which could not be further from science fiction. But I remembered thinking it was a great movie back then. And it's a great, I, I think of it as a great movie. Now I rewatched it three times in anticipation of uh, this record. And I see the similarities to star Wars from American graffiti that I never really appreciated before, but it's it, it, the guy, you know, again, as an original star Wars gangster, you know, like I, I would never ever want to not have the original star Wars trilogy because they're so foundational to me. Mm. But at the same time, I understand 
Francis Coppola's comment where he said that he felt the downside to Star Wars and a big downside was that after that, George Lucas stopped being a director and he just became the guy in the, he was just in the Star Wars business. Mm -hmm. And you look at a THLX, THX1138, I don't really enjoy too much. To me, it just feels like a, like a tone poem, not really a story. Yeah. This, this to me is such, this thing is a, a straight up masterpiece in such a completely different way that star Wars is that you're like, man, this guy, I don't know this guy, who knows what this guy would have created if star Wars had just been, you know, a hit, Mm. but not the culture defining thing that it became. And he just forced it, you know, he got forced into being the star Wars guy because this movie is just, it's, it's fantastic. I used to, like I said, I watched it again uh, and I was like, wow, this thing just works so well. It's so assured it's so confident and it's, and to think that it was his second film only. Mm-hmm. And then not that THX 1138 was a hit, you know, that was, that didn't do any business. So you could imagine a guy maybe kind of edging into his second film, kind of like, okay, maybe, Oh, hopefully this will work. But no, he can't, this thing comes in like kind of like guns blazing. And uh, it's just, it's just a fantastic movie. Yeah. And um, I, my source for this, I think, is uh, Peter Biskin's Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Coppola basically pulled him aside because um, Coppola produced this movie, and he right. is essentially Lucas's mentor. Um, and he basically pulled him aside and was like, uh, after THX you know, failed, was like, uh, you need to make a movie that people are going to want to watch. Um, <laughs> and, and he was kind of like, you know, awestruck, and he was like, I, I, the feeling I get was that he was a little bit butthurt by that. <laughs> and he's like, I'll show them, I'll write a commercial movie. But then he started picking up on all of this nostalgia for his own childhood in Northern California and such. And you're right, it just, it it comes together uh, so, so perfectly. Um, for me, it was a movie title I'd heard of for a number of years, but I actually just knew nothing about the movie. You know, it would it would show up on television every once in a while. So I'd see it like listed in a cable in in the TV guide. I knew a number of my friends' parents. My parents just owned the soundtrack. You know, um, it was like right next to their big chill soundtrack, right? So, um, but it it never. But like when I was younger, and we're talking like late elementary, junior high school, you know, if it didn't have Arnold Schwarzenegger blowing something up it probably didn't come across my radar to be completely mm-hmm. honest with you but then on and uh, so but that was about until about 1993 so i don't know how i found this show i was probably flipping channels and i saw like an ad for it um but i wound up watching an episode of pbs's show american masters and it was titled george lucas heroes myths and magic and it was a career retrospective up until that point and i think so they went from like you know his early life days at USC up to like, I think the young Indiana Jones Chronicles was like just wrapping up. And, you know, I was there for the star Wars. I was there for the indie, but they got to this segment on American graffiti. And I had no idea that George Lucas directed American graffiti. Um, Like you, I was like, this is the star Wars guy. This is the Indiana Jones guy. So in seeing the clips, I recognized um, Harrison Ford, of course, but um, more so recognized the two two of the leads, Ron Howard and Cindy Williams, because I'd grown up watching, you know, Happy Days, Liver and Shirley reruns, and you know, on on in syndication. 
And I was, it hit me at the right time because I was really deep into watching 80s teen movies. So I was going through all the John Hughes movies and movies that had John Cusack in them, like, you know, Better Off Dead. I watched Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Say Anything, Heathers, etc. So after I watched that show, I did what we all did back then, which was I got on my bike and I rode to the video store and I went and hmm. rented American Graffiti. Uh, the it, it quickly became an all-time favorite film of mine. Um, I owned it on VHS for years, but um, bought the Blu-ray uh, a few years ago, you know, to update the format. But also because and this is something I noticed when I was watching it again, this is a beautiful movie in widescreen. And for years, I'd see it, you know, in pan and scan sure. video or that you probably remember this, that weird like Gumby vision that sometimes they do on television where they try to squish the pictures. <laughs> everybody <laughs> looked everybody look weirdly stretched out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's gorgeous to look at. Um, you know, I, I could have done this episode without even watching the movie. I've seen it that many times. So what was really cool was that there were points where I was just kind of sitting back and just literally just watching the movie like not really paying attention to what was going on just watching how the shots are set up and things like that because it was just that cool to look at and such all right so the plot which is good luck Tom. it's kind of a plotless movie um i'm gonna do i've got a decent sized plot synopsis wikipedia breaks it down even more than me so if you want to blow by blow summary of the movie go there or just go watch the movie because <laughs> Both of us are going to recommend you watch the movie if you've never seen the movie before. American Graffiti takes place over the course of one night at the end of the summer of 1962 in Modesto, California. And it centers around four male protagonists. Uh, there's Steve Bolander, who's played by Ron Howard. He's a recent graduate. He was the class president slash big man on campus. His best friend is Kurt Henderson, played by Richard Dreyfus, And he is dating... Uh, and Steve is dating Kurt's younger sister, sister Lori, who's played by uh, Cindy Williams. Steve and Kurt are headed back east for college, which is a phrase I think they used to throw around back then, and are scheduled to fly out the next morning. So this is pretty much the last night. It's the last hurrah for them both. Additionally, we have their friends Terry the Toad Fields, played by Charles Martin Smith, who is still in high school, and he's the nerd of the group. Um, and John Milner, who is played by Paul Lamatt. He is older, probably like 21, 22, and he still hangs around with the high school kids. He still sports the greaser look, and he still cruises the strip. And he has a hot rod. He has a yellow, <laughs> as as Harrison Ford's character says, a piss yellow deuce coupe. So, <laughs> so after an opening where they're all together at Mel's drive-in, the four of them end up with separate plot lines. Kurt tells Steve that he's thinking of staying behind. He doesn't want to go to college. Steve gets is puzzled. He's angry. He's like, we're just about to get out of here. Where you, now you want to stay. Steve, Laurie, and Kurt go to the high school's like back-to-school sock hop. Um, he leaves Kurt and Laurie there, and then he winds up finding really anybody he's going to – anybody he can hang out with over the course of the night. He goes you know, off of the strip. So two things happen uh, to, to Steve uh, – sorry, to um, – Kurt. First, he sees a gorgeous blonde in a white Thunderbird, who's played by uh, Suzanne Summers, and he'll spend basically spend the entire night chasing her or trying to find her. Uh, second, he falls ends up falling in with a gang called the Pharaohs. They make them do all sorts of stuff. Um, the funniest of which is 
he hooks a chain to the axle of a police car and then they get the police car to speed after them. And so when it pulls out of its hiding spot, the body literally comes off of the chassis of the car. <laughs> so after all these hijinks and stuff, they make him an honorary member. He leaves the Ferris behind. He drives to the outskirts of the town um, because they all listen to the same radio station and there's all the same D and they, they have one DJ and it's Wolfman Jack who plays himself. And uh, he gives Wolfman Jack, who claims not to be the Wolfman, a message to say over the radio. And uh, as morning comes, the girl in the T-Bold bird calls the payphone at the diner. Kurt says he has to see her. She's like, well, I'll be around tonight. He's like, I'm leaving town. She's like, sorry. And so the romance is not to be. Terry and uh, Milner both wind up with hijinks ensue plots. Uh, Steve gives Terry his car to take care of while he's gone from college. Like this is a big responsibility. Terry immediately goes cruising, eventually picking up Debbie, who's played by Candy Clark. Now he lies to her about being rich, being a big tough stud. Hmm. He refers to himself as Terry the Tiger. And over the course of the night, they witness a liquor store robbery. They get Steve's car stolen. Terry gets drunk and throws up and uh, they find Steve's car, but then Terry gets into a fight and Milner actually winds up saving him. <laughs> Milner ends up having to drive around with Carol, who's played by Mackenzie Phillips. Uh, she is about 13, I think. She's a junior high kid and she gets pawned off on Milner when um, he's trying to pick up some girls and she's like, we got a girl you can hang around with. He's like, oh yeah, send her over. And it's like, and he's like, oh, man, my name is Mud, if anybody finds out about this. But he puts up with her over the course of the night. He really is just determined to get her home, but she's not, you know, she's not going to say anything. And uh, they bond. Um, the The highlight of which is Carol gets a water balloon in the face. And they pull over at the next stoplight, run out of the car, deflate that car's tires, and put shaving cream all over the windows. All of it's set to Johnny Be Good, by the way. It's a great, great scene. <laughs> But he finally takes her home. He gives her the doohickey that was on top of his gear shift. Um, she's like over the moon uh, because of it. And she goes in. Steve is in a much different place. Uh, at the sock hop, he breaks the news to Lori that he thinks the mature thing for them to do while he's away at college would be to see other people. <laughs> she doesn't take this well and she dumps him. He spends the rest of the night wandering around and moping until we hit the film's climax. And that climax is a drag race out on Paradise Road, out of the, out of the rural outskirts of Modesto. Because uh, you see through this entire night, a guy named Bob Falfa, played by Harrison Ford, has been cruising around. He's been looking to race Milner. Milner is the king of the drag strip, right? So he's, you know, he, drive, he drives a black car. He wears a Stetson cowboy hat. Which, by the way, was a compromise because they wanted Ford to cut his hair and get a flat top and he wouldn't cut his hair, so he wore the hat. So at one point, though, Falfa cat calls Lori. Uh, she gets in his car uh, because she's just trying to make Steve jealous. And after John drops off Carol, he gets his car ready and they and really everybody else in the cast except Carol, who's you know at home, and Kurt head out to Paradise Road. Lori stays in Falfa's car for the race. He and Milner race. John ends up winning because Falfa loses control of the car and goes flying off the road. Uh, Milner helps everyone get to safety as Falfa's car catches fire and explodes. Lori runs up to Steve crying, begging him not to leave her. 
The next morning, Kurt is the only one who gets on a plane for back east. Steve has decided to stay, uh, and he's with Lori, and they see him off. As the plane takes off, Kurt looks down. He sees a white Thunderbird driving along a rural road. We then get an epilogue where each of the four main characters' yearbook photos are shown, and we find out that John Milner was killed by a drunk driver in December of 1964. Terry Fields was reporting missing in action near Onlook in December of 1965. Steve Bolander is an insurance agent in Modesto, California, and Kurt Henderson is a writer living in Canada. And that is, I know I left some stuff out, but like, you know, <laughs> it's it's kind of, it has a progression of events, but it's kind of a plotless ensemble movie. And which was one of the things that the studio was kind of like wary about when it was released. But a couple of notes on this, and then we'll, then we'll, uh, we'll get into what we, what we love about this film. It was shot. Remember 775,000. It was shot in about 28 days. And in what's rare for a film, because if you know anything about um, uh, what's it called, uh, film production, this film was shot in sequence, which is you know not something you normally do with a, with a film. So by the time that you hit the late evening, uh, early morning parts of the movie, the actors really were that exhausted because uh, they were just, um, in some cases, he left in bloopers that were like first takes because it's like we got it. And the studio, uh, Ned Tannen, who was the executive universal who had greenlit the project, didn't want to release it. Uh, even though a test screening loved it, he thought that like Lucas had packed it with a bunch of his friends and stuff. They were going to dump it into onto television for a TV movie. Um, and depending on who you ask, Coppola either straight up offered to buy the movie and distribute it himself or just simply threw his uh, weight around and got it released into theaters. And once it went into theaters, it was a huge hit, as we, as we mentioned. But yeah, so that's American Graffiti. We've already talked a little bit about the film or like what we like about the film and stuff. Like, you know, uh, I don't know what, like when you think of this movie, aside from, I guess I'd say the the music, what does come to mind? Like what's the what's the kind of like, big thing about this movie that makes it, you know, worthy of preservation and, you know, and such. Well, I think I mentioned before, I think it's, it's, you just feel like it's, it's very confident, you know, right from the mm-hmm. very first, the, the, the first clock of the song, the, the uh, rock around the clock song. And then the, the, you know, the credits come up and I, you know, I said it, if you, if you want to, you can see some comparisons to star Wars in that, this is in a very realized lived in world and Lucas makes no effort to acclimate you to it. He just drops you in it and you have to catch up, which sounds, you know, kind of familiar, which he would do a couple (laughs) of years later. You know, I mean, I mean, even that film had the benefit of the opening crawl, you know? Yeah. Uh, But this doesn't even have that. This is just, okay. We're in 1960, by the way, you know, the poster, uh, this is not an original observation. I've seen this said by a lot of people, but the poster, which the tagline was, where were you in 62, right? Yeah. So this movie's made in 72, released in 73. So you're talking 11 years earlier. And what a seismic change America had undergone 
in just 11 years. Now, right, if they made that today, it would be, you know, where were you in 2012? Just <laughs> like, I don't know, starting my Twitter account. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think the Avengers world just came out. Yeah, exactly. The world just hasn't changed to that level yeah. the way it did then. And and Lucas was playing upon that. And part of the reason I think it, it holds up so well now is that the you're getting an insight into two different time periods. You're getting an insight as to what filmmaking was kind of like in 1972 and what it, what someone's view of the sixties was in 1972. So you're getting, you're getting both things. Um, you mentioned that it is just a series of vignettes. It all takes place in one night, which is just amazing. And I mean, the performances, I mean, you know, they're all top notch and it is literally like one famous person after the next. Yeah before they got big you're just you know constantly spotting even the people that didn't become stars like charles martin smith went on to long glorious careers i mean Charles, i can name half a dozen movies that charles martin smith has been in and has been great in yeah he just but then on top of it you know in a tiny role indiana jones <laughs> it's just like it's unbelievable who, that who has the best intro of anybody right Oh my he's god! Like, yeah. No, John Milner, nobody can beat him. And he's like, I ain't nobody, dork. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's the guy's driving his early version Millennium Falcon, you know, <laughs> and he's in that car. Um, it's just like I said, it's you you immediately. I mean, I think no matter what the time period, you can relate to the various personalities that mm. you see on display. I think we've all experienced that. I think probably most of us that are listening to this thought of themselves as Toad. Probably a little more on the toad scale, certainly than some, but but all of them, they're all relatable in some way. I mean, Richard Dreyfus as the as Kurt is kind of a nice guy, but he's sort of put upon and he's kind of buffeted around. And then this whole whole notion again for for I don't know if you you know lived in a small town and you ever had that pull of staying behind, like yeah. that's a big thing of like you realize that you know this is this is the, for some of these people. This is the best they're going to do. This is the best their lives are ever going to be. And you've got one guy, again, the Richard Dreyfus character, who's maybe looking towards something else, but maybe he's going to be distracted by the the girl in the, you know, the girl in yeah. white who's this angelic figure. It's just, and the movie is simultaneously sentimental about a past, but very clear eyed as well. And I think that is a, a marvelous combination. And we'll talk about it maybe later on, but like, mm -hmm. That that and you mentioned it like the, the, the title cards at the end where yeah. we find out what happened like that is Lucas just kicking you in the face and it's gutsy. It's really gutsy to end the movie the way he does. Um, Like I said, so it's just it it really is. The, the music is fantastic. I mean, we know that you already mentioned like a good chunk of the budget was spent on the soundtrack. But like when he wrote the script, he wrote it to specific songs, which you are never supposed to do. Yeah. Because you can't be sure you're going to get those songs. But he was like, no, this scene has to be cut to this song. And he had that kind of, he had that vision in his head of, of what this thing needed to be. And he just executed it so flawlessly. Yeah. He, I know he had a few alternates he ended up using because most famously they could not afford any of Elvis press. Right. Elvis. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, yeah. The, the, this feeling lived in, and this is something we don't get from a lot of movies these days because a lot of them are shot on um, 
though movies were shot on sound stages back in the in the 60s and 70s as well but you know this this movie feels like um it feels very authentic and natural in terms of like what we're seeing and i know that's part of the way that lucas shot the movie um you can get into real specifics if you want to go film geek about it but he almost shot it like a documentary um so some of the way it's lit and some of the way it's shot just makes it feel like you're like really there and this is the before the age of like the brown filter the green filter the blue filter <laughs> for the mm. thing turning the contrast way down you know that sort of thing um and it it does kind of cement for the culture or the zeitgeist if you will the time um at least early baby boomers nostalgia for their high school years because you're right this is on the this is the calm before the storm that was the 60s mm-hmm. you know kennedy's still alive in 1962 he he you know he dies in november 63 um Vietnam starts to escalate as you get into 64, 65, 66. The Beatles arrive in 64, you know. So it it's the it is the last moment. I think the character, I think we all can see kind of defines that in a way that's way more nuanced than other directors would have given in is John Milner. Because John Milner is a greaser and he's got the the tight white t-shirt, the the pack of cigs rolled up in the sleeves, the tight jeans and the, you know, the, the curl hair with the duck's ass hair, you know, et cetera. He's by this point, he's kind of a relic. Um, and, and you get that sense through the whole movie that like, you know, he's, he's way older than everybody, hmm. you know, they, they, they dump Carol on him. So it's kind of like they make, they try to, you know, they, they turn it into a joke, but, at the same time, there's something inherently sad about him because he could very well be the butt of the joke to the whole movie. You know, he's the old man hanging out with the thing. Or he could be like Wooderson in Dazed and Confused, where he's right, just yeah, this creepy yeah. guy that Matthew McConaughey is a great character, but he's totally playing it up for the, you know, for the sleaze. Um, but uh, no, Milner is not that. He he has a there's a mentor part to him, but you get this sense that he is. Uh, he's doing this because this is all he knows, like like you said. And even the race at the end, I get the feeling that he's almost doing it reluctantly. Like, this is what I do. I have to defend my honor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to mm-hmm. race this guy. I don't think he really wants to race him. And he's just kind of like, you know, he he does it and he's, there's a there's a resignation in a lot of the tone of the of the lines he delivers, and I think Paul Lamatt really is so good because this could be such a caricature uh, of a character of, of this type of character because they and they all could because Steve's the Steve was the class president, Laurie was the head cheerleader, so they're the you know they're the the pinup couple for the high school, you know. He's even got like she's wearing his sweater, you know that sort of thing. Kurt's the the emotional writer guy terry's the nerd and terry could very well be the um that character in greece oh i don't remember his name the glasses the pocket protector you know like that (laughs) sort of nerd he could be your lewis skullnick or something right so (laughs) he's not and they're not they're all these these nuanced performances of these characters who really do feel real and fleshed out 
And I think you're right in that, like this translates across generations because it it literally is my parents, um, more or less. My mom, my dad graduated high school in '63, and my mom graduated high school in '65. So this really is their right on there, yeah, right on their teenage years. But I connect to it partially because you know, I mean, I grew up on Long Island. But and, and I know you grew up in New Jersey, but we could both relate to that whole of like, I'm going to wander around all night, eventually end up at the diner, probably. And <laughs> whatever happens will happen because we have nothing better to do around here. And that's kind of what this movie is, too. It's just this sort of like, because that's what you did. You you hung out and such. Yeah, there's nothing to do. You don't really yeah. you can't really go too many places. I mean. So much of it is this sort of, to- no, I don't want to say toxic masculinity, but this sort of silly masculinity where the mm-hmm. cars are just so everything. I mean, all, all Paul Lamatt has is that car. I mean, that's it, you know, and any challenge that he has, he can't tolerate that. And of course, you've got Bob, Bob Falfa, played by Harrison Ford, just coming in like the cock of the walk, just belittling him at every turn. And he can't tolerate that, you know, and. Yeah, I mean the the whole scene of uh, Toad trying to buy the liquor because he wants to get you know the girl wants him to get the liquor and he's these pathetic stories about the and I mean good lord I I did that myself of the whole going into the store and trying to buy the one piece of contraband and burying it among the list of other non offensive items to see if the clerk would notice I mean I literally did that you know it's like uh, Slim Jim and uh, some toothpaste and a bottle of Old Harper and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they they reference this in one of my favorite Simpsons episodes where Homer's trying to buy illegal fireworks for the fourth. Oh right, yes, that's right. But so he he references says a bottle of Harper's some illegal fireworks, but he buys like <laughs> porno bags. Yeah, bury him. He buys like panty liners, yeah, like all these weird and, things. And Marge is unpacking the uh, the the, ba- the bag, and she's that's like, right. I don't know what have you you have planned for tonight, Homer, but leave me out of it. <laughs> that's right. It's when they go on vacation. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's 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 just it's true across generations. And and maybe, you know, you have kids. I don't. But maybe kids nowadays wouldn't say so because there's no there's no phones. You know, that's the big difference. But up until a certain point, I mean, funny, you've already mentioned you mentioned Big Chill and you mentioned Days and Confused. And it's yeah. like the, those films are roughly 10 years apart. And they each are talking about a time period 10 years apart from the previous film. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got 70 graffiti in 73 talking about 62 and you've got the big chill in 83 talking about the like kind of late 60s yeah sort of you know and then you've got days of confused talking about the mid 70s so it's like yeah each generation comes along and looks back about 20 years and says all right let me look back on my my childhood you know it yeah. really is uh it, it's it's it's, it's it, and i said the you know the music i love the the, the sort of mise-en-scene of it is that like the music goes from car to car you mm-hmm. hear the song in one car and then you hear it played in another car you know it's like it just it you're it feels so it's amazing when you think how good we all know now george lucas was at creating completely unreal worlds that he could create this that feels just like you said like almost like a documentary yeah and the music uh, just, just to just to throw our film nerd term out that's diegetic music <laughs> right the where music the music is taking place is in the, in the story, movie yeah. yeah because they're and it it makes a lot of sense um because when you grow up in an area like that there probably are only like two or three radio stations to listen to you know so it would make and and 
and this is 1962. So um, you're cruising in your car and things like that. You don't have a tape deck. You don't have a CD player or an MP3 hookup, you know, whatever. So, or a Bluetooth. So you're playing in the radio and all the kids listen to the Wolfman. So the idea <laughs> that it just kind of, kind of creates this echo throughout the, the canyon, so to speak of the movie, because they're all, and they're probably all listening to their radios pretty loudly and, and stuff like that. And, uh, Milner's got that great comment about the Beach Boys where he's like rock and roll's gone going been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. And like, you know, <laughs> we've we've all been we've all been I think we've all been that guy once or twice. Yeah, this feels um I think the other reason this feels authentic and lived in is that it's not costumey. You know, they they Lucas chose a couple of towns in Northern California um, that hadn't really not changed since 1962. Um, Modesto had, he couldn't shoot it in downtown Modesto, but like some of the storefronts and stuff, it was as, as much as he could get authentic to the night, early 1960s as, as possible, but the clothes feel real and vintage. So they don't feel like um, it doesn't feel like grease, you know, which right. is a yeah, musical. No, yeah. It's supposed to be like that, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like costumey, or a, it is a pure a true period piece here. Yeah, I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, Greece Greece is costumey, but on purpose. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not meant to be. That's not meant to be documentary. And you kind of think, you know, one of the things that that I noticed when rewatching the film was that Lucas had such a murderer's row of crew members to work with on this. At you know for his second film. I mean, he's got, as you mentioned, he's got Francis for Coppola producing giant help right there. You know, you've got Francis, the God guy did the Godfather producing your film, his cinematographer. He had a couple different cinematographers, but essentially the main one was Haskell Wexler, mm. Oscar winning genius, Haskell Wexler. And then it's edited by Verna Fields. Yes. You know, right. I mean, so it's like right there, he's got some of the best people ever to do those jobs working on his second film, which is, you know, all credit to George Lucas, but man, he knew how to pick his collaborators because those are all genius level people. Yeah. And the, in, in uh, easy riders, raging bulls, there's a commentary about Verna fields. Somebody quotes her basically as being like, she just sit and talk about editing. Um, yeah. And I'm picturing that. Was it? Oh, it's, it, it it's like, three of the traveling Wilburys listening to, I think it was like Roy Orbison or Roy something. Orbison. Tell yeah. stories. Yep. Yep. That's yep. what I'm picturing, except it's Verna Field talking about it. Cause, cause Lucas wanted his wife um, to edit. And Marshall Lucas does, should get credit for a lot of his early success too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but she, you know, Verna Field's just kind of like, you know, and then she went off to actually, I think she might not have finished editing. I think somebody took over cause she went to finish to edit something else after that. But yeah, it, it's not caricaturish. It's it it's shot beautifully, and the and the performances because you can't you can have a movie that looks beautiful, but if the performances are, you know, half baked, it's not going to work. You know, and and there are I mean there are Lucas some of Lucas's own movies are like that, um, but you have uh, even some of the supporting characters like who would be again caricaturish stereotypical characters like candy clark's debbie who's kind of a ditz mm. right he i think terry's line was like um 
you look like Sandra D or something like that. And and she's like, I always thought I looked like so so Connie Francis. So he, he thinks he says, Do anybody tell you you look like Connie Francis? And she says, I think people tell me I look like Sandra D. He's like, Yeah, yeah. And then she's like, Oh, I love that tuck and roll the post the upholstery. <laughs> and she she kind of goes along with all of his stuff and she actually believes his BS, but um he's like he's a nice guy and she could tell she's looking for a nice guy. And you really do feel like there's some real chemistry between them. And she goes beyond just being kind of the hot blonde that he picks up for the night, which is like the, which is the plot of so many eighties movies. Yeah. He also can't get out of his own way. You know, like he, he probably is a nice guy, but he also can't, he's so he's obviously, you know, like a real nerd and he probably doesn't get with girls very much. So when he has this bombshell, like he's just going to do anything to get her drunk because that's what she wants or whatever. And he just like, dude, just slow down. Like, yeah, I love, I love the, the opening credits. Like when he's riding like that scooter yeah, and he, he, he stops it and then he, it keeps going and he crashes into the wall. Like that was real. Charles Martin yeah. Smith really yeah. did that. Cause he didn't know how to ride the thing. And Lucas left it in and like, yeah. it's perfect. <laughs> this is perfect. Yeah. In fact, there, there's stories of him, like, Again, I don't know what's apocryphal, what's not, but there are a couple of stories of people thinking he fell asleep behind the camera. <laughs> Just let the scene go. Because uh, this is another thing uh, for shooting the movie. In a lot of scenes, he had two cameras going. So he wasn't shooting coverage because they had to shoot. They had such a tight shooting schedule. A lot of it was like a lot of these are like first takes because it's just like we we don't have the time to be Stanley Kubrick here. You know, we we have we're on a very very tight budget. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. It's just I'm kind of jumping around here. I'm just looking at my notes. Um, it's that know, kind of movie. I mean, part of the other yeah. thing is that I like that some of the stories, such as they are, are resolved and some are not. Yeah, which is which is again realistic. You know what I mean? It's like okay, we get a Kurt story has a beginning, middle, and end where he spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen the film, mm-hmm. like. He he keeps vacillating about whether to go off to college or not. And he does. You know, he finally does because he's not uh he he's not lured in by the the siren call of the, the girl, the the girl in white. Yeah. And then, you know, then you and you know, like the relationship between Steve and Laurie doesn't seem to have any sort of necessarily like he tries to like break up with her and that doesn't work really well. And they, that kind of leaves unresolved. And then we find out, of course, that he stays behind and then you know, Terry slash Toad story. He, he kind of has sort of a beginning, middle and end, but not really like it's, it's all just everybody's it's like your personal fates may vary, which is exactly like life. It's not like, okay, here's my six characters. And through these vignettes, they're all going to have the greatest night of their lives. Yeah. It's not, it's not so neat as that. I mean, I love it when Kurt goes to finally find Wolfman Jack and Wolfman Jack, like, and, and in the movie, they built him up to be this mythical figure. And he's oh, like, yeah. oh, he's a pirate radio. Oh, man, his the, his station comes from outer space because it's illegal. And all these stories yeah. that you make up as a kid or whatever. And then he gets there and it's just a guy in a booth. It's you know? it's very Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. He's, and then he denies like, nah, man, I'm not Wolfman Jack. And Kurt leaves. And then he looks at the little the, kind of like the little door jam. And then you see Wolfman Jack go. Hey, and then he yeah. does the voice. You're like, oh man, he like he BS'd me for kind of no good reason. It's fan- it just and it just leaves it kind of like that was that was odd. And yeah. it's like that's what life is like sometimes. 
a, a guy in a booth with a broken fridge full of popsicles. Because yeah. <laughs> this the come on, have a popsicle, kid. Have a popsicle. Ah. And, and this would kind of launch Wolfman. You know, Wolfman and Jack had a career as a DJ before this, but he would become like a game show mainstay, oh, you yeah. know, and those a variety show mainstay and stuff. Um, yeah, and and what this movie does, you know, like with with the um, with the open ended endings to some things, or kind of closing, or, or giving us those epilogues that that, that are just you know, two of which are just like. Oh, gut punches. Um, it allows the film to to be bittersweet without feeling heavy for the 90 minutes, two hours, which um, another film that had come along about a year or two before this, which, you know, used was was an early was a 50s nostalgia thing um, and used, you know, country and early rock music. The last picture show that's a lot heavier mm. in terms of, you know, what Bogdanovich is, is doing in that. And that is also on the kind of fifties nostalgia tip, although it's a lot darker than this. Um, Lucas played this like a pop song uh, as opposed to something like really, 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 really dark. And he, he let, he let that pallor of the sixties and of Vietnam and things like that kind of hang over it you know, especially toward the end there. Um, I love Kurt's progression of making the decision because he walks away from Stephen Laurie. Nobody else sees him again for the rest of the movie until the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it took, I actually think it took a few watches for me to realize that Kurt's not at the drag race at the end of the movie. And I don't know why I never, that never registered with me because he's trying to, he gets he gets back to the diner and he's waiting for the call. Um, but there's this scene. So he 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 has this night with the pharaohs, right? Who have this kind of like Brando and the Wild Bunch thing going, um, and they're they're like um, it's they're it's kind of fun. Uh, they're serious. They're like they scare him a little bit, but like you know they're they're petty thieves. Like yeah. he goes to pick his checks up from like the Moose Lodge or whatever for his scholarship, and they're robbing the quarters out of the pinball machine while he's talking to the Moose Lodge guy um, and stuff like that. And the the, the bit with the um, with the with the the axle of the cards, I think they replicate in like movies like Porky's and stuff like that years later um, and such. But the other thing that you can tell is when he finally does start to turn toward maybe I do need to get out of here. There's this really, it's a creepy scene. He runs, he's at the school. He leaves Stephen Laurie on the dance floor because they're having their drama. Uh, set the smoke gets in your eyes. Um, and he goes to open his locker. He can't open his locker because the combination has been changed. And he laughs at that. And then he runs it to his old English teacher. And, his English teacher is all like, yeah, I remember when I went back to school, but I like dropped out and came here and this is where I am. And as he leaves, he sees the English teacher, like kind of hooking up with one of the students, which (laughs) it's gross. But I think Kurt kind of sees that, like that actually might be his future. (laughs) If he's not careful, you know, like the, a lot of the guys who, um, a lot of the guys who come, who never make it out of the town and essentially become the first verse of Springsteen's glory days. Right. You know, it's <laughs> like we go back, we talk about the good times and stuff like that. And I think Kurt sees this, this English teacher. And I think that's where it starts. I think it's where he starts to realize that like, you know, he, he is going to have to get out 
if he wants if he want really wants to be happy in life even though he just kind of chases maybe one last night and when she's like i'm not you can see me tonight and he's like i'm not going to be there and she's like well oh well and he kind of accepts it and i i like i like that whole progression for him because it's um it's not dramatic in a you know there's no big speech for him. <laughs> Things like that. That's the other thing. There are no big speeches in this movie, you know, yeah. and Lucas is clearly a little bit of all these characters. We all know that he was a hot rod kid, you know, mm-hmm. apparently like he almost died in a really pretty severe car accident. So that's clearly John Milner is part of him, you know, like he's that you know, he was obsessed with speed, but he's also a sensitive guy like Kurt. He's creative. And uh, maybe he saw some of himself in Steve and that Steve's is kind of a regular guy. It's sort of funny when you think Ron Howard, you feel like the film is like by default. I, for some reason, my memory is that Ron Howard is the main character. He, I guess is because they think of him as, you know, on happy days. It's like, Oh, it's, he's the main character. And they're like, not really. It really, he really, yeah. at a certain point, he kind of fades from the film. And then he makes this, this like, as we see in the credit, like he decides to stay behind and, you know, I don't know if I don't, it's not necessarily Lucas is mocking him, but he's certainly showing that, okay, he stayed behind and look, he's an insurance adjuster and he never left Modesto. Yeah. Um, And he would have been the only possibly recognizable name out of the entire cast because of his years on the Andy Griffith show as Opie. But even that's a bit of a stretch, right? So yeah, he wasn't a name or anything. No, hang no. a movie on to. Yeah. 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 This wasn't like Travolta doing uh Greece or Saturday Night Fever yeah. or something like that. Mackenzie Phillips, who has unfortunately had a very, very hard life that's been well documented. Uh, she went on to do one day at a time, and I think that's what really cemented her truly in in our kind of pop culture with she played the uh the oldest daughter of Bonnie Franklin on that show. But she's like weirdly adorable in this movie and the right age to be kind of precocious, but not like Macaulay Culkin annoying in that way. And um, it's almost like she the, the, the performance I can compare her to as this character in this movie and this relationship that she has with Milner is Natalie Portman in the movie Beautiful Girls with Timothy Hutton. It's a little creepier in that movie, but she most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But, but she important place is kind of like wise beyond her year girl. Now, Carol is definitely a, a kid, but there's this, um, there's something very, you know, this is never going to get creepy in this storyline. Um, John, like Milner never would. We've never gotten that feeling. And um, it's, it's really kind of a cute thing without getting too, Precious, and I I love her in the movie because because she is the you needed to have somebody's little sister be in there, right? I mean, for that generation, those were the older kids, and and she kind of represents like the the middle part of that generation who watched all these older kids go off to college and everything. But Carol would have come of age in the sixties, sixties. So there's there she's kind of on the other side of that generational divide, and and it's kind of interesting to see her perspective through that. And I love the scene where they they trash that people's car. That's a marvelous scene, just because again the way it's constructed. He just lets it, 
you know, the, the song is playing and he just, the camera is just kind of grabbing them. And you can, at one point him, her and Milner like bump into each other when they're yeah. kind of running around. And, you know, you just got the sense it was just completely like, just run around and mess up the car. Like, that's it. That's the sole level of direction that they got. And again, it just feels, it feels real. And it's fun that, that he stuck with her because she doesn't really think of him as particularly cool. No, you know, she's kind of mocking him, and he thinks of himself as like the I'm the coolest of the cool. I got my my cigarettes wrapped up in my in my sleeve, you know. And she just is like, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> she doesn't care, and he's having to deal with that a little, you know. He's like, oh man, God, this girl doesn't, you know. He he thinks of himself again. He's too old to be there. Yeah, you know. And there's always that guy. There's always that one guy who just you know never left the town, and he's still kind of hanging around around kids, and you're like. What is this about? But yeah, she's she's wonderful. And like when when you know she gets the uh, the water balloon in the face and it just explodes, which apparently was not exactly supposed to happen. No, <laughs> she just got it. And like her reaction is genuine. It's again, it's they're all wonderfully naturalized performances. And again, that's got to be. It's so funny when you think we've all heard of the criticisms of George Lucas is that he isn't good at directing people. Yeah, you know he's great with the machines. But famously, you know, he he doesn't know how to talk to his actor. You're going to make it faster, you know, or whatever. But but obviously here he is dealing with a bunch of, as you mentioned, outside of Ron Howard, who had lots of experience from being a kid actor. A lot of people are kind of new. And yet he's really great at drawing these performances out of them very natural, you know, in a naturalistic way. And that's the hallmark of a great director. That's, you know, being a great director, I would imagine, isn't just being able to convey the story. It's working with your actors to get across what you're trying to get across. And he obviously was great at that. Yeah. And the, um, the drag race at the end, even again, naturalistic, real, you know, I think one of the most famous drag race scenes in movie history is uh, from rebel without a cause, right. Where, sure. Um, and you know, that you have interior shots of the car and the exterior shots of the car. I don't think there's an interior shot of the car through the entire race. I think it's all, just shot showing the cars and and Milner at the end you know Terry was like you did it John and Milner was like he was beating me hmm. and that's another thing that's just like it's 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 been eating at him anyway and, and it's been very sad um he could have very well been the butt of the joke throughout that entire Carol storyline but there was again it was the two of them were so endearing together that it worked and, and some of the scenes that he's involved in because he he intersects with a lot of these other characters more than uh you know uh, more than anybody like he's the one who bails terry out because they find the car and then they start getting beat up by the guys at like whatever chop shop they were and mm-hmm. there's a fight and um it's kind of a realistic fight too it's a couple of punches and then you know that it's over but we get these these endings you know, like we mentioned Steve, we mentioned uh, Kurt living in Canada, being a writer. So he's the one who got out and, and John never makes it past 1964. And Terry goes missing in action in 1965. Oh, brutal. It's yeah. Just brutal. Yeah. And we're going to get the soundtrack in a minute, but I just want to briefly, very, very briefly touch on the fact that there is a sequel to this movie called More American Graffiti. It is simultaneously the definition of an unnecessary sequel and a noble failure, because there are bits and pieces to that movie that are not too bad. And, um, but basically what it does is, is that movie takes place over the course of four new year's eves 
64, 65, 66, and I think 67. It's like consecutive New Year's Eves. And the ones for 64 and 65 end with what you saw in the um, in the epilogue here. So it's showing stuff that we already knew. Uh, the, one of the other storylines is Steve and Lori, and they get involved with like a, a, a anti-Vietnam protest. And it's implied that Kurt's in Canada because he dodged the draft, hmm. um, which makes sense. <laughs> this guy, like I could totally see Richard Dreyfuss' character dodging the draft, um, especially because when they say go back east, it's more than likely they're going to an Ivy League. So if he ended up at like Columbia or something, yeah, it makes sense. And then the other one is um, Candy Clark and Mackenzie Phillips as like hippies <laughs> and Again, it's not a particularly good movie. It was one of those movies that would show up like all the time in like syndication. And so I've seen it a few times. It has its moments. Uh, the Vietnam sequences are actually pretty well shot. But for the most part, it's it's just like you didn't need to make the movie. But like, you know, yeah, so that we go on. We get to see the 60s through these characters. But it's it's not that, uh, you know, Steve and Laurie are at each other's throats because they have two kids who are just like raucous and tearing the place apart and their just marriage is just falling apart and stuff like that. So they really are Brenda and Eddie from that song. So <laughs> any, any movie that ends with an epilogue, the way American graffiti does, you can't do a sequel. Cause he's like, no. well, he just did the sequel. Yeah. He just told you everything, you know, it's like the, I don't, I don't need to see more of Ron yeah. Howard and Cindy Williams. Cause yeah. I, you know, I was already told, okay, I kind of get the idea of what happened to his life. I, yeah, I, I've seen that movie. It's certainly not like some disaster. No. But it just, it's just, you're just like, yeah, all right. Yeah, we just didn't really need to go on this journey. It's a film you watch out of curiosity. At, yeah. At, yeah. At most, yeah. No, you're right. American Graffiti, I think National Lampoon's Adam House, Fast Times at Ridgemont High are like three movies that are really well known for the epilogue at the end credits of what happened to all the people mm -hmm. in the film. And uh, and it, it was something that had been done before American Graffiti, but it wasn't done very, very commonly. But you're right, this, this like I said, the shadow of, of everything, of Vietnam especially, th this is really like uh, the last night of, of true innocence for a lot of these characters because real life is is creeping in and, and Steve ends up in you know, Steve, Laurie, and Terry are kind of following John's path of being in suspended adolescence until it's too late, you know, um, and Kurt is going in the opposite direction. But the influence of this movie, uh, you know, can't be denied. There are other movies that are big ensemble casts that have wild plots and vignettes and things like that prior to this. There are a couple of nostalgia flicks. This really does, though, establish that nostalgia movie subgenre that we would see with, you know, we mentioned the the big show with Days and Confusers, another flashback flick. Even as you get into the late 90s with like The Wedding Singer and Romy Michelle's High School Reunion and Gross Point Blank and stuff like that. The idea that you are revisiting something nostalgic about your youth and, and you have a, each of those movies has a different story to tell for my money. Gross Point Blank's like one of the best. Um, love that movie. <laughs> yeah, but this movie kind of establishes that. That it also establishes um, the the kind of jukebox soundtrack. Um, you know, rock and roll have been movies for a while now, but you know, I'd say the seventies, eighties, and nineties are like this golden age of movie soundtracks. Um, you know, like 
they really, especially as you get into the eighties, they really see the, the, the money that can be made by having like a big pop hit on a movie, you know, flash dance, footloose, et cetera. Um, American graffiti is a, I have the soundtrack here because I usually don't brag about these things, but I found this at a Goodwill store for 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> it's so I have it on, I have it on a, on a record. It's a two record set. Um, the, it's a gatefold and the gatefold, if you actually hold it vertically, it's a, it's a, uh, Mel's, um, waitress on roller skates, holding up burger Coke fries platter with, uh, the deuce coupe in the background and, and Mel's driving. Um, and by the way, if you ever want to visit Mel's drive-in, the, the location they used was torn down years ago um, out in San Francisco, but it's been recreated at uh, the Universal theme parks. So you can you can go get your picture taken with some classic cars in front of Mel's drive-in. <laughs> I did it in Orlando a number of years ago. And then the inside gatefold is, is pictures from the movie, but there's like 41 songs on two records, everything from... You know, we're gonna rock around the clock, which opens the movie. Uh, Runaway by Del Shannon. Why do fools fall in love? Uh, That'll be the day by Buddy Holly. A couple of things where there's actual footage of Wolfman Jack b- in before the song. Let's see, see you in September. Surf and Safari. Smoke gets in your eyes. I mentioned a couple of Chuck Berry songs. Johnny B. Good being one of them. The Great Pretender. Uh, I only have eyes for you. Uh, and I'm, I'm just kind of looking at the Come Go With Me by the Dell Vikings, which was reused in Stand By Me many years later. Love and Joe versus the Volcano as well. Another yeah. movie of mine. <laughs> Is the push- front sleeve of the of the album the, the more Drucker drawing? No, it's it's a oh! it, it's it is it is, as I said, it's um it is a big picture of a woman, uh, a drawing of a woman. Kind of she kind of has like a Betty Boop almost thing going in is she's one of the what Mel's car hop waitresses. That's the front? Yeah. And, oh, how could they not use the mic? I know, right? <laughs> oh, come on. It was right there, guys. Yeah, yeah. This is like Oldies 101 collection, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a number of movies like this that I mentioned. I mentioned a bunch of them already that have soundtracks that are basically like, you know, they might as well just be in like a 70s compilation or an 80s compilation or something. It's like, you know, or, you know, like the the Guardians of the Galaxy movies have basically been mixtapes of stuff from the 70s and things like that. And and that's that kind of became a cottage industry for a while because those soundtracks sold big in some cases mm-hmm. and, and such. And American Graffiti like really started that. We mentioned that the kind of the, the music is in the movie. It is part of the movie um, because it costs so much they couldn't score the movie. So Lucas was like, you know what? We're going to just, we don't need to score the movie. Yeah, they don't need it. They didn't need to score the movie. It works exactly the way it said. It works just totally with that through line the whole night. And then I love that the music kind of fades in the morning. Like you don't hear as much. It's like, okay, things are settling down. It's quiet, you know, and it just gives you that kind of eerie, like, oh yeah, it's, we're all, it's five. It's starting to get light out. It's everybody's a little overtired. It's perfect. Yeah, the last four songs, because they're on the soundtrack, they are listed in the order in which they appear in the film. So you start with Rock Around the Clock and you end with All Summer Long by the Beach Boys, which is the song that plays over the closing credits. Mm. Um, When they're heading out to the drag race, they're playing uh, Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs, which is, you know, everybody's heard that piece, but it's a really, it's soundtracked very well. In that scene. And then only you by the platters and then good night. Well, it's time to go, which 
if you've seen three men and a baby, <laughs> that's the song oh, they Lord. keep singing to her. But that's like the last, um, that's the last song on the soundtrack before the uh, before the Beach Boys, and it is both of those songs are kind of very tired at the end of the night. You're right; it's it's you know, and even the next morning when they show up to see Kurt off, it's like you know, did, you wonder, did they ever go to sleep? Yeah, <laughs> I just looked up the 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 cover. That's a that's a crime. That's a crime. Did you see they didn't the just use the American yeah. the, the did, more trucker? No, what's in front of you? Is it just the orange background? Yeah, yeah. Because if you if you because um, the two record set, if you flip it out, it's her whole body, mm-hmm. and the bottom half of it in the background is Mel's driving with a few of the cars in front of it. Mm, yeah, with no, no. I would have loved to see that. More truckers, like one of the best yeah. people ever to put pen to paper. Oh yeah. Uh, what a that's just yeah. like what? Who thought that? <laughs> who thought did that he, was a good idea? Did he do the Animal House poster right too? Uh, no, I don't think he did. Similar I don't style, think though. but it's a very similar yeah. style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, that's on the cover of the Animal House soundtrack. Yeah. I have a CD. Um, yeah. So, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not the best cover, but the soundtrack itself is like, it's like a primer for this type of, this generation of oldies music, you know, which we can all get from streaming services that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but back in 1973, you weren't really going to find these. You know, unless you had some old 45s or, you know, I don't know what record stores were like back in the early 70s if they were carrying some of this old stuff. Um, Especially if it was just like, you know, this was before the age of albums. Yeah. You know, in a way, the, the 50s and 60s, I don't mean the 70s. By the 70s, you had full on albums. But, you know, I mean, there were records featuring Buddy Holly and everything, but it wasn't like, you know, what the Beatles would put together and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. It's certainly not curated the way it is on the. Re- I mean, again, mm-hmm. it's the the songs are are placed throughout the movie at certain. I mean, again, the the opening, the rock around the clock is such a great high energy thing to start with. You know, yeah. just boom, 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 and you know, and you're just like, oh man, yeah, I'm ready to go. Let's you know, and it and it and it, it captures that anticipation of being a kid and going out for the night and just kind of like you were talking about earlier. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. And as you get to be older, you don't have that in life as much. You know, your days are more, you know, kind of planned out in front of you. You kind of know what's going to happen. When you're 16, you're just like, yeah, let's just go out and just see what the scene is. And that's that's a really exciting thing. And it it sets that it just sets the tone again. Just and it's sort of funny because the you know, the opening image is just so still. It's just the Mel's diner, mm-hmm. and then the the neon comes up, and then the music starts, but then everyone starts, you know, filing in. Uh, and yeah. we get we're introduced to everybody. So yeah, it's just uh it's it, the guy again. You may think when you think about how Star Wars and all his subsequent work is totally removed from anything related to like no music and then no modern music in any film he would ever touch after this yeah. but yet this thing is so effective it's so effective he, like, he had a perfect ear for this i mean quentin tarantino gets mm-hmm. you know credit for being oh my god the soundtracks are so fantastic or uh, paul thomas anderson or stuff yeah. like that but man it's like lucas was there early and knew how to you know knew how to put it together you're like god i've never heard a movie that is sounds so vivid even though a lot of this music i'm sure to people in 1972 was pretty old hat stuff yeah, but but Rock Around the Clock is I looked it up in the in the liner notes. It's two minutes and eight seconds. So he's able to play the entire song yeah, at the right. beginning of the movie, which is brilliant. 
because if you've got an audience in there that knows the the song and they're especially if they're adults who were kids when the song came out you play the whole song you know yeah the credits are running but they're if they you've hooked them in with the song you you let them have that you kind of let them have that dance right and mm-hmm. then and then you can go into your movie and you've you've essentially given them an overture <laughs> that yep. to to and you've primed them up and it was yeah his his thing was uh it was really, really well done. The only movie that I can think of, um, and, and you know, this is just me. I, you know, I probably have to go watch that uses pop music. This effectively prior to this, um, or at least just prior to this, would probably be The Graduate mm-hmm. because of the way it uses um, Simon and Garfunkel's music to set the mood right entire songs and stuff yeah. which you were not supposed to do back then yeah 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 so um you know and uh but you're right like lucas you, you see so much of lucas the filmmaker in this as well as lucas the storyteller and you're right you see the the beginnings of star wars and things like that and and um I don't know how much of the Disney Plus stuff you've been watching, but there was uh, the book of Boba Fett was uneven. But at one point, there was this gang of teens on like hover cycles <laughs> who came in and and they're working with Boba Fett. And I know they got some kind of back talk on the internet, but then again, it's Star Wars. To me, and that, Lucas isn't involved in these productions, but to me, that's like one of the most George Lucas things. Is you know because like the whole thing about Luke in the beginning of Star Wars is he's basically kind of like he would have fit right in with John Milner and Kurt and Steve and these guys. You know he wants to go hang out and go get stuff for his car. <laughs> you know I mean he doesn't want to work for his uncle on the farm and he wants to he wants to get out of there. Like <laughs> right, yeah. Luke yep. is one of these Luke. Skywalker is like one of these kids. It's just, you know, it, it's the, and that's, that's his status quo before, you know, Campbell's hero mythology journey, which I cover every year when I do the Odyssey in ninth grade English <laughs> takes place and he gets the call to action, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. So, so I love how this kind of seeds a lot of that stuff too, but even then it's just, again, it's, it's just this gorgeous piece that does not feel like it was made in 1973. Um, or released in 1973. Um, it doesn't feel like it's from the 70s. Uh, whereas sometimes you can you can see a movie that's supposed to take place in the past, but you can totally tell it was shot in like 1974. You know, oh yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's hermetically sealed in the best possible way. You know, if you if you didn't know and you'd say this was made in 1982, if you didn't know the cast, yeah, and they said though this was made in 82, you'd be like, mm, yeah, all right, it's plausible. It seems you know, yeah. yeah. It, it, again, it's just the best the best possible yeah i mean yeah he, he the, we know lucas loves speed that's his thing you know this is pod racing you know I mean, that's his sometimes to his detriment yeah you know? <laughs> it's like his big thing so i can imagine you know watching i I'm, it's almost amazing that there really is only one drag race in the whole movie you <laughs> would think that's like so his thing i'm surprised there aren't more as maybe shows some restraint but i love that and even after this dramatic thing and then it ends up with one car being destroyed like this is yeah. like oh man it sucks this is terrible why did we do this and the car like blows up too yeah right yeah it's like, gets ruined. it gets yeah. it sets a fire and they get him out i think steve like tries to go punch harrison ford because he's like yeah, and then he gets to see laurie she's like steve don't leave me and 
and Milner's helping him away because like he's like grabbing his arm, you know, like and and all of a sudden they're walking away and it's like boom, the thing goes up. It's like jeez. <laughs> hmm. Cause they're out in like some farm road, right? You know, <laughs> the outskirts of town, which mm-hmm. I'm being from such a dense suburb, not as familiar with um the outskirts of town would have been like the highway. Mm-hmm. heading out east or something like that but um around where i am here where you have charlottesville that has kind of a small city aspect to it and then some suburbs and you usually go to the counties in the north and the east and stuff and it's rural it i can now i can picture it because i can relate to that and um sometimes i can hear the people who souped up their honda civics and are mm-hmm. blowing up you know the highway like and i'm like Dude, you don't need to do that. <laughs> How small is it really? Hmm. So, all right. So, um, you know, obviously, I don't know if this is on streaming anywhere except for like a rental somewhere. It is uh, on Netflix. It is on Netflix. Okay. It's currently, on, I'm sure not for long. Cool. But it okay. is, it is currently, I was so happy. I mean, I was, nice. I was going to be willing to rent it. Anyway, but when I saw that it was on Netflix, I was like, oh, my God. So I just watched it like again, like three times in the in the course of a week just to like pick up little details here and there. But, yes, it's one of the rare non uh, films. It's one of the rare pre 2010 films. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's gorgeous um, on Blu-ray. The Blu-rays also got a bunch of extra features. I watched some of them and, you know, uh, there's been. The things written about this in different books and stuff, it's its a well-documented piece of filmmaking. Like you said, there's so many people came out of this. Um, even Paul Lamatt had a decent career in TV movies, and Candy Clark had a, a few things here and there. Like I said, Michelle, Michelle Phillips, that's her mother. But Kenzie Phillips went on to One Day at a Time. Unfortunately, has had a lot of struggles with uh, substance abuse over the years. And you had, of course, Ron Howard going on to Happy Days and the unfortunately we uh Cindy Williams just died last year, I believe, or earlier yeah. this year. Which Bo Hopkins. I mean, Bo Shirley. Hopkins had a long career. Yeah, I mean, Bo they, Hopkins again, plays even the, the, even the people, Yeah, even the people that were not stars yeah. have had long careers. These people, Charles Martin Smith, he's the untouchables. Yeah. The, you know the untouchables, I mean? yeah. Starman. Like you, you just yeah. having yeah, I mean if you're an actor, right? To me, if you're an actor and you're like, you have three films, you've only three films in your resume, and those are American Graffiti, Starman, and The Untouchables. That's a career. That's a solid career. So yeah, they he really had to get this yeah. amazing eye for talent. Yeah, that's um, that's the career of uh, that one guy who was in like all of those uh, '70s movies, like The Deer Hunter and Dog Day Afternoon and stuff. Oh, John Cazale. Of, yeah, John Cazale. Yeah. <laughs> Only did five movies, yeah. and every one of them was a Best Picture nominee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like that's just, <laughs> nobody has a batting average like that. Exactly. So uh, before I let you go, um, why don't you go ahead and plug uh, whatever you uh, whatever you want? Oh, well, geez, thank you. Well, of course, I said I do a bunch of shows on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, as you mentioned, including two film, two shows about movies, Fade Out and the Film and Water Podcast. Fade Out comes out every month. Film and Water kind of comes out when I feel like it. And then I also do another show, Pod Dylan, which is all about the work of Bob Dylan over on the FM podcast network. So not uh, yeah, I do Fire and Water, which is F and W, and then FM Pod for Pod. So I just turned the W and rotated it 100, 180 degrees to make it an M. Uh, but but yeah, no, I said I love I you know I love talking about movies, and so I love talking about. I mean, George Lucas would be an interesting 
subject for fade out because we can be reasonably sure that he's never going to direct another movie. Yeah. I just think he's that part of his life is over and it would be interesting. I mean, I don't really want to review revenge of the Sith <laughs> um, <laughs> as a final film, but nevertheless, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that he is obviously comfortable with that being the, the, the legacy, but I mean, good Lord. I mean, any director who can say he's got one masterpiece to his to his film career is that's an astounding success. And Lucas could credibly say he's got two. Yeah. Uh, and very different kinds of masterpieces. And that is for all the brickbats to get thrown at him that have been thrown at him that I've thrown some myself mm-hmm. over the decades. You gotta, you gotta represent, you know, you gotta, you gotta respect that. That's yeah. just an amazing creative output uh, that he could even do these films so different from one another. So props to him. Yeah, thank you. Um, I highly recommend Fade Out. And is Citizen Kane Minute still available for listening? Absolutely. Because that was a great show. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Yes, it's on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, all the episodes, and it's on any podcatcher of your choice. But yes, I did Citizen Kane five minutes at a time with different guests. That was a that was a blast. It was that was a lot of fun to listen to, and I was on one episode. I really enjoyed it. So and I'll be back uh, next episode for the second of the three movies. I'm not doing them in order. Because uh, I'm jumping 20 years ahead, and I'm doing what is essentially American graffiti, but set in 1976 with a hell of a lot more marijuana. <laughs> um, I'm doing Dazed and Confused next episode, and along for the ride with me will be the only person I could think of who I can talk Dazed and Confused with because quotes from that movie are in our daily lexicon and that is my wife so we'll be uh, we'll be back in uh, in a few weeks to a month with that until then uh, check out the blog for essays and stuff um if twitter is still alive i'm at pop f and you can follow <laughs> me at instagram and facebook and such and as always thank you very much for listening and take care Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop, culture randomness. So we can have a fun on-